If you have your Bibles today, we're going to be in John 14 uh, for a little bit. Um, in some of 15 and then some other places as well. Uh, so today uh, is the day that a lot of churches observe Pentecost. Um, so if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the church calendar, uh, it's just um, think about it as there's rhythms in our lives anyway, right? There's just a natural rhythm to your day, to your week, uh, to your year. Uh, it's shaped by seasons. You, you, know, it, it, you get into the creation story, and it's, it's amazing, God. You know, this, these rhythms of life are just really built right in. You know, it creates the sun and the moon to govern the day and the night and the seasons. And so all this, this natural rhythm, and, and so it just kind of circles around uh, every year uh, the life of Christ. And so we... Um, find it helpful here. Uh, we don't, uh, we're not uh, legalistic about it, but uh, on occasion, I look back, the last time we talked about Pentecost was 2015, so it's been a minute since you've heard a Pentecost sermon, uh, so today's the day. Uh, we're going to talk about Pentecost. Uh, so uh, here's the thing. The reason we're going to talk about it is because it tells us something helpful. Uh, it tells us something helpful about what God is like. Uh, it tells us something helpful about what we're like, um, and it tells us, it just lets us know what the world is like. And, and so it's, it's this really, really helpful thing. Uh, so Christianity teaches this really amazing, amazing thing that, um, that heaven and earth and God and man, the, the, the uncreated God and created mankind, that, that man was designed by this God to actually to be together. As a matter of fact, if you one of the ways, one of the ways to think about the Bible uh, is that it begins with God dwelling with man in a garden, and it ends with God dwelling with man in a city. <laughs> everything, everything in between Genesis and Revelation is what God has done to make that possible again. What He's doing. Uh, so, so it's God. That's what we're designed for. I think behind so many of the things that we pursue, even the good things, so many it's behind so much of the shame that we feel, behind so much of who we are, is be, just what lies there is that we're supposed to be dwelling with God, <laughs> and 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 so the life that flows from that, we are somehow broken and separated from. And so Christianity teaches this amazing truth that the way that we were designed was to be in a intimate relationship with a living God, the created dwelling with the uncreated. And so we have this story at the very, even at the very beginning, um, Genesis, the way that it just begins, it's, uh, it's just fascinating. It tells us so much. Uh, it says that um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that the earth was without form, and it was void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. This, I, this is the image of ocean. Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God speaks into the chaos, and he begins to order it with his words. And the way that he orders it, he orders it in a specific way. He orders it so that the little bitty images of him that he makes, right, humans, he creates a world in which they can thrive. That's what the world was made for, to be a place where humans can thrive. These little images of God that he makes can, can be fulfilled and, and live and, and flourish. And that's how he made everything. 
one of the beautiful things about uh, great, uh, great authors, great stories, uh, is that as you read them more than once, uh, details get filled in. So when you read Genesis the first time, you might, the one one, you don't see this, but as you read it three or four or five times, what you begin to notice is that this language comes up over and over again. This language that's used here in Genesis 1.1. And really what's, what's being painted, and when you hear it over and over again, it, it makes you not just understand the, the new thing you're reading later on, but it kind of points back and makes you kind of understand the thing that you read before a little bit better. And really what's being painted here is that God is hovering over the tabernacle, the, the temple of Creation, that all of creation is God's domain and he dwells there and speaks in and he orders it in a certain way. It's temple language. Or maybe it would be better to say that later when they talk about the temple, it uses creation language, right? That these things are seen together. And so so Christianity teaches that, that God was supposed to, God created this, this temple and that we're supposed to design, we're designed to live with him and, and for him. It's an amazing, amazing story. Not only did he design this creation so that humans could thrive, but, um, well, he, he gave them this amazing thing. He said, listen, don't, don't eat of this tree, and, and then we did, and we, we sinned, and we rebelled, and, and God had to cast us out of his presence, and so, that, so no longer could you live in the garden. There's this amazing verse where it says that when Adam and Eve, that the first humans were cast out of God's presence, out of the garden, it says that you know, God put an angel there to prevent the way back to garden, because they couldn't come back in. And so, they were once in Eden, they're cast out of Eden, and Eden's this place where they dwell with God, and now they're not dwelling with God anymore. I used to think of Eden as this place that we could, like, if we looked hard enough, we would one day find a uh, uh, very Indiana Jones style. But I don't think that's what it is at all. I think it's, Eden is this, Eden is this place where somehow heaven invaded earth, and it was going to be the whole thing, and, and God guarded that, and he stopped that again because of sin. But then as we go through scripture, we get more and more of what we call here, what I like to call Eden, Eden moments, right? Um, so we just study, we've been studying Exodus, and there's a great Eden moment. Uh, this guy named Moses is, is, is walking through the desert, and he sees a burning bush, and, but the, burst, uh, the bush is not consumed. And so he, he goes over to the bush, and God speaks to him out of the bush and says, you're standing on holy ground. And there's this Eden moment, this moment where somehow heaven has invaded an earth, and the, the two are together. There's another Eden moment not too long or uh, a little while after this in, in Moses' life. He, he, God uses Moses to, to rescue his people, and he takes him to this place called Mount Sinai. And Moses has been there before, and God descends on this mountain like a fire. Just descends just on top of the mountain, and he's just burning flame and, and, and lightning, and, and everybody's afraid and terrified. And, and then he tells them at this, this scene, he says, listen, I want you to build a tabernacle for me. Why don't you build this place? Because here's the deal. I dwelled with you in Eden, and you know what? You're my people. You're the Israelites. I'm going to come, and I'm going to dwell in your midst. That's what he tells them at Sinai. I'm going to come. I'm going to dwell right in the middle, and so I want you to build me this place where I can live. And the people's reaction, the Israelites' reaction to this is awesome. They say, no, thank you. God's like, I'm going to come dwell among you. And he's like, nah, we're good. Thanks, though. We don't want that. And he's like, no, I'm going to move right in the middle. He's like, and they're like, they literally say to Moses, you go talk to him and tell him no. And so, because, and here's the thing, like, that's the, that's the right reaction, and here's why it's the right reaction. Because they understood something that I think that I forget, which is that 
God is holy and righteous. And when God, God's holy and righteous presence does this amazing thing where it doesn't tolerate evil because evil is bad for humans. So he hates evil, just like we would hate bad things happening to our children or our friends or people that we love. And so God's presence and his holiness drives out evil, which sounds like an amazing thing. God's presence driving out evil. It's the thing that we're longing for. It's what we want. God's presence coming and fixing all the things, driving evil and getting rid of it. But here's what those people realize that I forget. If God's going to deal with evil, that means he's got to deal with me. The things in my heart, Jesus has this amazing teaching where he's like, you guys have heard it said before that don't murder. He's like, I'm telling you, if you've been angry, you're guilty. If he's going to deal with evil, he's going to have to deal with me. And they recognize that and they're like, how is this God going to live in the midst of us and drive us drive out evil without driving us into oblivion? And Exodus, like Moses is like, that's a great question, you know. And the rest of Exodus, and part of Leviticus even, is this description of how God's going to do this, how he's going to make this, this, this way for him to, to live with people. And, and, and what it involves is them building this very elaborate tabernacle that has all of this creation imagery in it, and they're going to have to live a certain way and, and do certain things. And, and there's the introduction of this idea of sacrifice, I mean, people have always thought about sacrifice, even before it's written here. People knew about sacrifice. It's just a natural human reaction, it seems to be, around the world and across religions that we recognize there's something bigger than us that we need to pay homage to. <laughs> but God takes this idea and he, and he brings it down and he focuses it. And he says, listen, here's what, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to make this possible. You know that you have polluted your heart. You've polluted relationships. And he even uses the language of polluting the land. You polluted the land with your sin. So here's how we're going to purify it. You're going to take a sacrifice and you're going to kill it. And that blood from that animal, the priest would do this weird thing where he would go around the temple and tabernacle and he would sprinkle it in certain places. Matter of fact, there's one point when Moses sprinkles it on the people. And the idea was very much this symbolism, this powerful, powerful ritual where people would see that their sin caused something and this blood representing life, God would count as purifying them, covering them and purifying the space. Amazing, amazing imagery. As a matter of fact, the tabernacle and the temple, these, the, the, one, the, te- the tabernacle being the tent that would move and the, temp- the temple being later a more permanent structure, both of them, when you walked into the front door, the first thing you saw was an altar. Because God dwelled in the back, and if you wanted access to God, you needed to know your sins cost something. There's a price to be paid. And so there's this image ingrained in their minds that blood is life, and life is what's required to purify the space and to purify me. Well, uh, Bible's a lot longer because it doesn't go great. Uh, it doesn't go great. Uh, matter of fact, like, like, all the re- after this, like you get a bunch of prophets. God sending people to, to, the, to uh, God sending uh, uh, people to um, explain. Hey, listen, uh, your sacrifices. I'm sick of them. Uh, one of my favorite verses, and I know I say it all the time, and I mean it every time I say it. One of my favorite verses is uh, when God says to them, uh, He goes, He goes, uh, you guys think these sacrifices are for me? The cattle on a thousand hill are mine. You, you think if I was hungry, I'd tell you? No, this is for you, not for me. And you've just made it a ritual. You don't understand what's going on. And he says in another place, he says, your sacrifices, I'm sick of them. 
They're just ritual. They don't mean anything. You've forgotten what the point was. I desire your heart way more than I want sacrifice. I want your love and your affection and the obedience that flows from that. So that's what goes on. And matter of fact, the Old Testament kind of ends with this note of like, we're not where we're supposed to be. All these promises that God's going to fix these things, are, we're not there. And then Jesus comes, and, and Jesus makes this amazing claim that not only was he the son of God, but that he was the ultimate Eden moment. Right, This moment where heaven and earth intersected, right? Uh, like the burning bush and, and like the flames on Sinai and like the flames that filled the temple when they dedicated it, Jesus says, you know what? I, I'm that place. I'm that intersection between heaven and earth. I am that Eden moment. So they killed him. <laughs> and so he dies and, and then he, his disciples are devastated because they've seen this guy. They've seen this man Teach powerfully. They've seen this man heal blind people, deaf people. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen, they saw him bring people back from the dead. And then he's killed. And they had all these hopes that he was going to be the one that would rescue Israel. And then he blows everybody's mind by coming back from the dead. Right? Crucified. In this, they're all in Jerusalem with this, this big festival called Passover. And Jesus is crucified. And then three days later, he comes back from the dead. And everybody's mind is blown. And people, like his disciples are like, well, let's go now, man. Like the, the kingdom of God's coming now, right? We're about, like, we are ready to take this to the ends of the world, man. Everybody's got to know about this. And Jesus is like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I need you guys to pump, pump the brakes for a second. And then, they're on a walk one day, about 40 days after he rose from the dead. 40-something days. And, uh, about 40 days. And he says, uh, takes him on a walk, and he says, like, hey, I'm, I'm going to go. They're like, what? Go where? He's like, I got to go, but I'm going to be here. Like, I'm going I'm to be gone, but I'll be here. Like, you won't see me, but I'll be here. And they're like, what are you talking about? And he says, listen, I need you to go back to Jerusalem, hang out, wait for a minute. Uh, and then, uh, he floats off into the air. And they're like, what is happening? And an angel shows up and says, why are you just standing here? And they're like, because our friend just floated off. And the angel's like, dude, do what he said. Go back to Jerusalem. Go back and wait. And so that, that, that scene that was read earlier out of Acts 2, that's that scene where this, this wind, this, this rushing wind that must have probably been like the wind that hovered over the face of the deep and, and spoke truth into the chaos. And, and then fire descends on and it is over their heads and is sitting over their heads and, and over each of them. They begin to speak in a language. Uh, the language is being put back together. The people that were, that were back in town for this, this, this festival that was 50 days after Passover, this, this Pentecost festival. They were back in Jerusalem from all over the world to celebrate this harvest, the harvest. And so they've come back there. It's an old, old festival from Leviticus and Deuteronomy talk about it. And people from all over the world are there and the people with these tongues begin to speak in a language that everybody understands. They can understand what they're saying. It's almost like when you go back to Genesis and there's, there's this story where God scatters humanity because the Tower of Babel and confuses their language. It's almost like he's putting it back together again. And these tongues of fire descend and they, they hover over each of these, these people in this room. Because God said, Jesus said, there's power is going to come. 
And it just had to be a wild scene. Like, it had to be a wild scene. Like, what is happening? What is going on? And what's happening is amazing. It's, it's, the claim is unbelievable. What is being communicated is amazing. It, it, let's read John 14. John 14, I'm going to start in verse 15. It says this. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. This is Jesus talking to his disciples before he's crucified. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Very hard word to translate. If you get a different translation, counselor, advocate, helper. More than just somebody that helps you. But, but anyway, to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you'll see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you'll know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has, my, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Legitimate question. And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus says this is going to happen. And what he says is going to happen is that God is going to come and dwell with you. And so there's this wild scene. Jesus says, go back to Jerusalem and wait for me, or wait for this, this power to come on you. I know you're eager to take this message of, of, of what I've done in the, in the coming kingdom to the world, but I need you to wait because you're going to need some power to go with you. And so they go back, and this happens, this scene happens where God's presence just fills this, and these flaming tongues just cover everybody's head. And, and what's happening here is wild. This claim, it, well, let's be, uh, to, to be honest, to be clear, it, 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 was, it was a little offensive. It's a little offensive. And here's what I mean. Uh, God's presence represented by the fire and the wind, it's not in the temple, it's not in the tabernacle, it's over believers, over individual people. Are you suggesting to me that like God dwelled in, on Sinai, like, like God was in the bush, like, like the planting bush, like, like God was in the tabernacle in the temple, that now God is going to be inside of people? That's a crazy claim. But that's what Jesus said would happen. That somehow God's spirit would come and, and take up residence like it had in the temple, but in your life, in, your, in you some mysterious way. United to God in some crazy way. Here's why that's offensive. For a couple reasons. One, well, you sweat and you stink and you're gross. You pick your fingernails and you do all kinds of manner disgusting things. Because you're human. We do that, right? Not only that... We gossip, we tell lies, we believe, we believe things that aren't true. We, we do all manner of awful things. How in the world is God going to come and dwell inside of sinners? He's a holy and righteous God that drives out evil. How is he going to live in this polluted, broken down vessel that is me? 
and not to be mean, but is you? And the answer is, such is the power of the blood of Jesus, right? Like, the blood of Jesus is that powerful that God, that's purified and somehow made holy and righteous, not because of who I am or what I've done, but by his work, the scattering of the life that is in him all about my being purifies us in a way that God can now come and literally dwell with us. These weren't perfect people, and God is dwelling inside of sinners? I mean, that would have blown people's minds. Do you understand what it takes to take care of the tabernacle? And you're suggesting that people, that God's just going to come and live inside of people? This is a brand new idea in the history of time. That can't be, yet it's the claim in what happened. And, by the way, there's some people that kind of benefited from the whole temple process thing, so they're not exactly happy about that. When people are like, no, we don't need to go there anymore. God doesn't dwell there. He now dwells inside of me and inside of her and inside of him inside of us. It's a problem, right? People, you've made enemies now. What's happening here is the beginning of a whole new world, a whole new way of being. It's a heaven invading, heaven taking over, heaven, this Eden moment, but except in my life, in your life. Uh, people have language for this, right? The Peter and Paul both talked about it. Peter actually says this in, in 1 Peter 2. He says, as, I came, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, to a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He is taking us, and he's more than a metaphor. Somehow God is dwelling inside of us and building us up into a place that he dwells in this amazing way. The claim is absurd that God is dwelling with us again and has found a way for him to be with us without destroying the evil that is me. Unbelievable. Of course, they've been talking about this for a while. There's this guy named Ezekiel. He's a prophet. Uh, and he says, uh, he tells a story um, about how he heard God and God gave him this vision. Ezekiel 37, he says that he uh, gave him this vision of this just valley of just dry bones, just dead bones. They've been dead for forever, right? And he says, I want you to preach to them. And here's this wind and this rattling of the bones and the flesh comes back on them. And, and God actually promises in that. He's, they stand up and they begin to speak to speak and to walk around and God's putting life back into what was once dead and God tells Ezekiel, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to actually place my spirit back in my people. That's what you see at Pentecost. It's God doing what he promised Ezekiel would do. God doing what he's been pursuing all along, putting us back into relationship with him. It's unbelievable. He's undoing the separation of the world and making things new again. It's a promised new life. So, here's my, here's, my, here's, here's my thing, right? Here's my question. Here's the thing that I struggle with, wrestle with, that I don't know the answer to exactly, but if I have faith in Jesus, how am I supposed to feel? I, I mean, have you ever just wished that like, you could just know, right? There was a switch that came on, you know, like, do you have faith in Jesus? Well, do you see the little tongue of flame? Yeah, I do, huh? You know. Right? How, am I supposed to experience something like that? I grew up next to this kid named Ben Milner. 
in Dothan. I was little, and I remember, I, I loved him. We played every day. He had a great trampoline. You know one of those old school ones? Not with a safety net. That was insane. It had like half the springs, maybe, you know? It was for sure good tetanus on this thing. I loved it so much. But his family, like, I remember like, them telling me, like, my, my parents were going to explain to me, uh, no, they, they, they went to a church where they believed that you, if you weren't really saved, you had not experienced the new life, you weren't going to heaven if you couldn't speak in tongues. So they believed, right? Because of this text, right? Or Acts 2. And uh, I remember being really upset about that. Then later in life, I encountered people who believe this. If you can't remember the moment that you were saved, then you're not really saved. Am I supposed to remember the moment? Am I supposed to hear a loud rushing wind? How am I supposed to feel? How am I supposed to know? How am I supposed to react? Is this, and, and how am I supposed to be now in the world? Am I supposed to be like, hey, everybody, I'm the access to God. He lives inside of me. No, of course not. I have nothing to do with it. It's not that. Also, here's another thing I believe. I Here's what I'm going to say. I don't think it has to be this moment where I don't think this is a moment where fire descends. I think this is a one-time thing, or actually two-time thing, uh, that, that God did. And, and I'm saying that it doesn't happen this way, but here, here's what I'm going to say. Here, I'm going to say it this way. When you have faith in Jesus, I think that you may experience it differently than I do. I think your experience may be different than mine. I think we all may have different reactions. I know people who... I know that sometimes I make fun of like the, the, like the youth events that I went to, the smoke machine, the fog, you know, all that stuff, right? The, I got the lights and stuff. Like, like I, I know sometimes, like, uh, there's always a key change in, in the song that only has nine words, right? You know what I mean? Like, like, uh, like that. I make fun of that moment. I shouldn't because that's how Josh was saved at the Sandy Patty concert. And uh, so, I'm sorry, Josh. I was just kidding. That's not true. Um, when she got divorced, Josh worried he wasn't saved. Uh, it's, uh, no, I make fun of that. I just did it just then. Uh, but I shouldn't. I shouldn't. Because I know people who had that experience, who were at this event, who sang Friends or Friends Forever on the bus ride home and have lived that out since then. They had that moment. Right? They had that, that, that event. And it was so real to them. And in struggles in their life, they look back on that moment and go, in that moment, God was real to me. Praise God that he dealt with you that way. I know other people are like, I don't know a moment at all. I don't remember not loving Jesus. And I've watched that faith sustain them through really complicated times. I heard this amazing testimony this week. Uh, it was on a, on a podcast. It was so beautiful. So beautiful. It wasn't like mine, but she talked about how it was just a mental ascent that God used. She just said, you know what? I really believe that he rose from the dead, and I'm going to give myself to this. And God saved her. And she's living that out now. I think that maybe a personal God and personal beings, maybe we have different experiences. Maybe you don't look for tongues of fire. Maybe you don't look to define it. Maybe you just look to, to, maybe you just look to whether or not you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, that he did what he said he was going to do. Do you confess and believe that he is Lord of your life? You believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Look to that. Not to some experience or some moment necessarily. But I will say this. There are some things that you should see in your life. 
you should see increased trust and faith. As you live the Christian life and you give yourself to this God, if, if, it's, been, if it's true that you believe in Jesus, and then what that means is that you should see as life progresses increased faith and trust. I'm not saying there's not downs. I'm not saying there's not moments when your faith is weak. I'm saying that over time you should be able to see increasing trust and faith in his goodness. You should see increased unity. You should see in Christ unity with the, the things that separate us when we are in Christ, or, or the things that, that join us in Christ are much greater than the things that separate us. And things separate us, right? Languages, cultures, histories, backgrounds, education, real things that make it difficult to be in relationship all pale in comparison to the fact that we are children of the king with an eternal destiny. You should see increased unity. You should desire increased unity. You should also see the result of the Spirit of God that is dwelling inside us in your life in certain ways. You should be compelled in certain ways to... Well, you know what? It says in Galatians 5, it says this. Here's the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. Those that belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. There's this increasing joy and peace and patience and gentleness in our lives. Does it mean you're the most gentle person ever? No. Some of us started at very different places. On the gentleness scale, I started at like negative seven. So if I'm at a two now, just know I've come a long way. I'm all sharp elbows and, and angles, man. I know, and I'm, God is working in my heart. Just to, I think some people, work, they, look at, they look, at our li- we look at our lives and we're like, look at my life, how could I possibly be a Christian? And I want to look at those people and go, why are you even looking at your life and desiring to be? Maybe, maybe that's evidence that God's working in your heart and in your life. I'm not saying you're where you need to be, but, but isn't that a beautiful thing that God has held onto you this long? Maybe that, that tells you something. I had a professor who told the story. He said, he's pastoring a church. And he said, this, he this lady who would just come to, the, come to him all the time. He said, it was almost like monthly. And he would come to her just like, just so worried whether or not she was saved. Just so worried whether or not she was saved. Just worried, 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 worried. And he said, he finally said to her, look, I don't have a scanner. I don't know if you're saved or not. I don't have a scanner. But I have a checklist. And he's like, he's like, you care about the saints, you show up for church, you show up for worship, you fight for unity, you do all of these things. You may not be a Christian, but you've got a real way, weird way of living it. Yeah, right? Like, like these things should be growing in our heart and our life as a result of the fact that the holy God who's, who cannot be contained by the entire universe has taken up resonance in some mysterious way in our lives. We should see that type of change or at least that desire for a change. I think there should also be this increasing thriving, right? No matter the circumstances, because of a change of mindset and focus. Romans 8, Paul is writing to the Romans and he says this in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So there's a way to live according to the flesh and, and it's, you're thinking about it, you're focusing on it. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But it's that the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. It can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. 
Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, spirit is life because of righteousness. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life, give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. God's spirit living inside of us, setting our minds on the things of the spirit instead of the things of the flesh. And here's the thing, whatever we set our mind on in this sense is what's gonna be produced in our life. The fruit of the spirit is just what the spirit produces in your life. It's not like I go out there and go like, Ugh, I have to be more patient. It's a good thing to do, but if I just, I feel, I've used this example before because uh, I can't think of a better one, so I'm gonna use it again. Uh, I feel like most of my life I'm out there just like knocking off bad fruit and like taping up fake good fruit, right? Like I'm just take, I'm taping patience to a vine and going like, no, look, I'm patient. I'm taping, the end, but it doesn't last very long, right? Because it's fake fruit, it's eventually gonna fall off. What is my life producing, right? Your life will produce what you draw from. If you're drawing life from, if you are trying to live off of something that is not Christ, your life is going to produce all manner, repeatedly produce all manner of difficult things, all manner of sin, all manner of fleshly, worldly things. If all I can think about is if every, everything would be okay if I just had this relationship, your life is going to produce things that make that relationship God. I'm going to lie. I'm going to be willing to, 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 to do things that I know aren't necessarily good and right because the relationship is the thing I'm drawing life from. So that's the thing that gives me, tells me what to do. And so, of course, my life's going to produce all manner of weird things. If this person would just act right, if I just had this, here, here's what I'm trying to say. I mean, I really believe at the core of the things that we're looking for are the fruits of the Spirit. Here's what I mean. Uh, do you ever get a thing that you just like obsessed about, like Google it? Like you just keep Googling it over and over again and finding irrational ways to have this thing? Let me tell you what mine is right now, just so you know. I want a teardrop camper. Not a huge dream. Except for you, if you know me, you know that I don't want the base model, right? It's like a $40,000 teardrop that I want, plus the airline tickets that I need to go to look at the ones to get it exactly right. So I've actually Googled airline price tickets to this place that makes them so I can look at this teardrop camper, which is insanity. Do you know how many hotel rooms I can stay in for $40,000? But I think about it all the time. You know why I think about this teardrop camper all the time? What I realize why I Google it? Because I think if I had it, I would find peace and joy and patience and kindness I would find goodness because the things that are keeping me from being this way because I don't have this teardrop camper. If I could just escape for the weekend, if I could choose that, I could just hook it up to my truck and drive it out to the lake, I would have such peace and harmony. I would always be a good person from then on out. I believe this crazy thing. What we're looking for are the things that the Spirit produces in our life. Do you want that boat? Do you want that lake house? Do you want that relationship? Do you want your kids to act this way? Because it's, going to, because it's going to fulfill you? Because then, if, if, if just then, if just this would happen, then I would have the joy and the peace and the patience and the goodness. Would you rather have those things or just the joy, the peace, and the patience, and the kindness, and the goodness, and the mercy where you are right now? In all manner of circumstances. The thing that concerns me, the things that I dwell on, as I look back at my life, are the people that I, that I, that I know who said... Who walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, who, who went to seminary. But I know pastors who no longer walk with Jesus. 
I know people who you would look at and go like, their faith must be so weak and their faith sustained them through the worst thing that you can think of. What is the difference? What is the difference in a faith that sustains me through the worst times and protects me in the best times and corrects me and moves my heart and a faith that seems to crumble the second things don't go my way? What is the difference? I would argue according to the text and according to this beautiful picture that all of scripture tells, it's the indwelling of the spirit giving us life. That's the difference. A very real access to life. Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. That somehow when we have faith in Jesus, we sing Rock of Ages, it's a beautiful song, right? Rock of Ages. Uh, it just, just talks about this uh, fancy word, fancy word, if you're, if you're collecting $5 theological words, uh, imputation, the double imputation of Christ. My sin imputed to him, placed on him, his righteousness imputed, given, placed on me. That, that somehow God would allow his righteousness to count for mine and my sin to be placed on him. And when I have faith in that, and that begins to shape my life, and I draw life from that, somehow the eternal life of God through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit being in me, somehow begins to fill me and move me, and change me, and shape me, and that is now the thing that begins to produce life in my life. It's a story of scripture. Now look, we're still waiting for God to come back and restore all things, right? To drive out evil for good. I want him to come back and make all things new, and I'm protected by the blood of the lamb. Thank the Lord. We're still waiting, but in the meantime, we have this. By faith. So what we do in the meantime is we confess and we repent. We rely on what we have in Christ. And we also celebrate. We, we unite together and we come to the table. And we're going to do that now. We, we, we don't have the sacrificial rituals anymore, thank goodness. Because we have Christ. But he did tell us to do this, to come to the table, which represents the sacrifice that he made, the body broken and the blood spilled, so we could have life. So we're going to come to the table to celebrate and we're going to sing and we're going to worship. So uh, I'm going to pray and, and then uh, after this song, uh, uh, I'll have you stand and you're, you'll, we'll sing this song and, and during this song, confess, repent, whatever God calls you to do during this, this time, do that. But if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you are welcome at the table. You don't have to be a member here or a regular attender. Just if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you are invited to the table. If you're not, if you don't know yet, here's my encouragement. We, we would encourage you to wait. Um, it's, it's a family meal. It's a meal for sinners for sure. It couldn't be anything else, but it is a family meal. A thing that unites us, the body broken and the blood spilled, a thing that gives us life, a thing that gives us power, a thing that nourishes us. So what we'll do is we'll sing this song, and, and while we're singing this song, come by row, grab the elements, return to your seat, and at the end of the song, I will lead us in the taking of the elements. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your word that shows us, that points us to the beauty of salvation, the beauty of your spirit working inside of us. God, I pray that we just increase our faith. We have faith, increase our faith. that we might know that you are active and living, that you are producing in your people life. That apart from you, we just search for things that satisfy but only produce death. But in you, there's so much more that no matter what we face in life, whether we face loss or great gain, that you are everything to us. Give us that wisdom. Give us that heart. Give us that gift. 
It's available to us. Just no matter what, no matter where we are, no matter what we're pursuing, if we would stop where we are and turn to you, you offer life and life more abundantly than we could ever dream. Not just eternal life, but eternal life that begins now, that we have access to now. Shape us and make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.